Hello and welcome to episode two of the Liviana. This week we will be having a look at the wonderfully light and positive topic of death in the afterlife. This is something that becomes a huge theme throughout ASNA2, but it's such a huge topic in of itself. We only ever really touch upon it, a few customs, a few vague beliefs, but I wanted to really go into it. So before I go any further, this is going to be quite a detailed podcast and we will be touching upon some difficult themes such as murder, suicide, infant deaths, grief, death from disease and pandemic and so on. If you feel like this may be something that you're not in a mentally good enough position to deal with right now, that is fine. Please email me at my usual address and I can give you some alternative work. So as always, I ask you to please prioritise your physical and your mental well-being before the content of my lessons. So if you need anyone to talk to about these themes or issues, you can either contact me or your personal tutor at our regular email addresses. And if you can't remember what they are, they are all on the Moodle page. Okay, so that's just, you know, a little warning for you there. So um, this is a massive disclaimer, I will be focusing on Roman practices and beliefs today, frankly because that is what I know the most about, and where the Greek practices vary drastically, I might, you know, sort of point these out along the way. The two cultures are quite similar in many ways, so it doesn't really make sense to talk about Greece and Rome, and frankly we deal with a lot more Roman death than we do Greek death on the course, so I feel like this is slightly more relevant. It also has to be said that like with any culture, attitudes towards rituals around death, etc. change drastically throughout the years and so it's important to never talk about how the Romans did it in a broad sense, but how the Romans did it in the first century, for example. It will be split into a few main sections, uh, dying, funerals, grief and the afterlife. For a really, really good source on Roman death, and the book I'll be using as a sort of reference for this podcast, look at Valerie Hope's Death in the Ancient Rome, a source book. It offers a wide range of ancient literary sources for all of the aforementioned categories and more, and it gives you a detailed but easily readable digestion of this quite difficult content. So I will warn you, this is going to be a much longer podcast than the one about the Dinatora Deorum. So make sure you've got a cup of tea, a large notepad for notes, and you can pause it often. I'm going to try and split it up where I can with little musical interludes where you can pause it, go and get another drink, take five minutes, whatever you need. Okay, so to break it up, I'll try and do that. Also, this is a brief reminder uh, to my ASNA2 classics students that this is your classics lessons for the whole week, okay? I didn't post a second podcast last week because I was trying to put as much detail into this one as I could, so I kind of got overrun with it. But, you know, if you're only getting one podcast a week that's half an hour, 45 minutes long, the research that you're doing off the back of that should, in theory, take about three hours. So don't just read Wikipedia, don't just give me a list of very vague bullet points on a subject. I want some in-depth research to come off the back of these. So that's just a little reminder for what I expect of you. Okay, so on that note, let's dive straight on in to ancient death. So um, to give a little bit of context or introduction to the idea of Roman death, it's important to remember that when we're talking about it, it's a very, it's very different in character and understanding than it is today. So nowadays we fear death a lot we go out of our way to remove it from our lives, to put it in a box and to hide it. 
We put sick people and dying people into hospitals on the edge of town with minimal visiting hours. We have hospices to house people who are dying so they don't have to be integrated into normal society. We have funerals where a closed box is given an hour of sunlight before being hidden behind a curtain removed from sight forever. We put cemeteries on the outskirts of towns and away from houses. And what we keep of the dead has nothing to do with their death. So even funerals nowadays are becoming more and more a celebration of life rather than a commemoration of death. We keep photographs and memories of the dead that signal their lives and their aliveness, not their actual death. And we often get over death by coming to terms with the world that they're not in, but almost in a way like they vanished, like, you know, they were here and now they're not and I've got to get over that. But very rarely does this process actually involve any kind of dwelling on their deadness. Very few people in the modern day, outside of sort of professionals who deal with death, can actually say that they've seen or been around a human corpse. And so death has become like this ultimate boogeyman of society. So most traditional monsters are so horrifying because they bring death into your immediate consciousness. So ghosts, zombies, vampires are all monsters that are dead. All other monsters are only so horrifying because they either have an association with hell or, you know, something like hell. So like demons, possessed things or hellish creatures or because they pose an immediate risk to your life. So, you know, would werewolves be so scary if they couldn't kill you? Are you not more scared of spiders that have fatal venom than money spiders or daddy long legs? Are tarantulas the most scary because you see them eat large mammals like mice? You know, is Joe Exotic only not afraid to get into the tiger cage because he's confident that his tigers won't kill him? So this was not actually so in the ancient world, and especially not in Rome. So where life expectancies were low and infant mortalities high, death was very much a part of everyday life. Death was everywhere, and so the Romans had a profound respect for death and engaged with it on a face-to-face level in a way that we just don't do it today. Of course, there are elements about death that are universal, right? So grief, for instance, is much the same to a Roman mother as it would be to a modern one. Losing someone you love gets not no less painful, regardless of the circumstances, but the cultural construction of grief in their funerals, their rituals, burials and beliefs are vastly different, okay? We have to be very careful also with any kind of funerary archaeology in the ancient world. There's a huge amount of material culture surrounding death to deal with. When you think about it, there are vastly more dead Romans than there ever were live Romans at any given time. So whilst many of them would have been sort of mass cremated and given an unmarked grave, a minority amount monumentalised their death in necropoli, tombs, catacombs, graves, cemeteries, urns and so on. And we can tell a lot about the ancient world from these bits of data, including social and family structures, social mobility, demography, legal status, employment, wealth, even like Romanisation, put that in sort of air quotes. Um, The idea that the Roman family was mostly nuclear, for example, you know, like mum, dad, two children, is based entirely on our understanding of family epitaphs, tombs, catacombs, that kind of thing. But we have to be careful with this data because death is such a hugely emotional and unknown entity in the ancient world that people 
often aggrandise their wealth, age, etc. on their epitaphs, epitaphs to fool other generations about their life. So people often became in death what they wished they were in life. And this actually went both ways. So in some cases, um, as I've sort of just mentioned, some people would say that they were younger, older, healthier, wealthier and more celebrated than they actually were in life. But on the flip side, men with lots of power and money often abandoned it at death, hoping that if they entered the afterlife with nothing but an obol for Quran, that they would find a bucolic, simple shepherd's existence in their eternal afterlife. But that obviously doesn't reflect the wealth and power that they had in life. But because of this misrepresentation, great care has to be taken by ancient historians to use and decode this evidence. And so great care must also be taken when speaking about ancient death in general. The key is to always have a suspicious eye and to never remove the emotion from death. Humans are hardwired to fear death and grieve the dead. It's literally in our genetic makeup. We cannot understand death and we never have and we probably never will. And that makes it one of the most terrifying things we will ever face. So if you can understand and remember the humanity involved in death, then you'll have the appropriate lens through which to study it in the ancient world. So let's move on to our first section of inquiry, dying. So as I've just suggested, the modern attitude to dying is very different to the ancient. So nowadays we can rely on stats and figures to tell us about our futures, right? We know roughly how long our lives are going to be, uh, what is most likely to kill us from genetics or culture. You know, that if we eat too much fat, we may get obese and that could kill us. Or if every female in my family has had breast cancer, I should probably get more screenings and so on. So thanks to our medical knowledge... I know what can be prevented, treated or what is fatal. I'm sure it's of no surprise that no such safety was assured for the Romans. They had very little knowledge of what could kill them. And to be honest, even if they did, they're far more likely to have died randomly by being hit on the head by a fallen roof tile or forced into a suicide mission foreign war or murdered by their angry neighbour or they'll have a bad harvest and starve to death you know they're more likely to have these kind of things than we are today death was often random brutal and prevalent in their lives and so death was something far more integrated into their understanding of life in terms of archaeological evidence this reflects that often random deathscape hundreds of different ages splatter through epitaphs and skeletons are actually hard to age precisely making the average life expectancy for example very hard to pin down so for example pliny the elder carried out a census in the years 72 to 74 ad in one region of italy many people actually claim to be over 100 years old and several over 140 years old so despite Pliny's claim to accuracy, this makes for an interesting and entertaining read. It can tell us a lot about attitudes towards death, namely that you know beating death or avoiding it is preferable to succumbing to it. But that isn't to say that either Pliny or the Italians were being intentionally dishonest. Often in areas where there was low literacy rates, a few people, you know, when people didn't really count the years passing, there's a more general misunderstanding for how old people actually were. It's only sort of in the more recent era of the Roman Empire that, that things like calendars were rigorously upheld. 
So I'm going to blast through several different elements of ancient dying and hoping that we can get through it in a short amount of time. So we're going to have a look at infant mortality, death and old age, disease and disaster, murders, death as entertainment and suicide. So the first question I'm going to ask, and we are kind of forced to ask of the ancient world, is when did they think was the best time to die? So for children and babies, the risk of death was particularly acute. It was common for over, well, it was around 50 to 75% of children birthed would die in their first few weeks of life, or certainly the first couple of years. It was said by Plutarch that Cornelia, the mother of Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, birthed 12 children, but only three of them actually lived to see adulthood. And this was quite common. So what is key here is that you can imagine the impact that repeated pregnancies and deaths actually had on parents, surviving siblings and other family members. In a letter to his friend, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, in 165 AD, a man named Fronto describes what this kind of environment is like and what it did to him and his family. He says, With many sorrows of this kind has fortune troubled me all through my life, for, not to mention my other pains, I've lost five children under the most miserable conditions for myself. For all five I lost separately, in every case an only child, enduring this series of bereavements in such a way that I never had a child born to me while not bereaved of another. So I always lost children without one remaining to console me, and with my grief still fresh I had to try and produce others. And this reality must have been so much more pungent in poorer families, where sanitation, diet and medical knowledge and accessibility was that much worse. There's an issue with the archaeological evidence for these deaths, though, um, as it's incredibly rare to find any kind of monumentalisation or record of them. This could be due to the lack of disposable income, but somewhat more likely, the deaths of young babies were just not so rigorously mourned due to the frequency of the occurrence. So there was a surviving record that the poorest women on falling pregnant genuinely just didn't expect their children to live at all. Whilst this makes the infant deaths no less sad... It is likely that no great efforts were made to bury or memorialise these frequent deaths of young children. Nevertheless, some simple texts can often capture the frequency and poignancy of early death, such as this epitaph carved into a funerary altar found in Mainz, Germany, that read, Telesphorus and her husband, the parents, to their very sweet daughter. One must lament for this sweet, sweet girl, Oh, that you had never been born when you were to become so loved. And yet it was determined at your birth that you would be shortly taken from us, much to your parents' pain. She lived half a year and eight days exactly. The rose bloomed and wilted too soon. It must also be remembered that not all infant deaths were unwanted. Lots of babies were rejected by their fathers at birth and so exposed, which is a practice whereby children were left in the wilderness or in the street alone to perish or to be taken in by another family. This was often an economic necessity, but could also be because of a number of reasons, including suspected infidelity, gender of the child, disability and so on. On the opposite end of the scale, there's death in old age. So, as previously mentioned with the quote from Pliny's census, old age was often regarded as a special celebration. 
So whilst generally the oldest citizens were around 60 to 75 years old, it was known for people to live much longer. Epitaphs across the empire record people being very particular about their age, especially in the elderly. So in this first century AD epitaph from Germany, you can see that people are being very specific about both past, present and future deaths. So it reads, Pusa, son of Trugilius, aged 120 years, lies here. Prisha, daughter of Pusa, aged 30 years, lies here. Vinda, daughter of Tegniamarus, aged 80 years, will lie here in the future. So that being said, uh, there was actually a stigma attached to living for too long. So due to the quality of life that the per that, that person and those around them would have. So becoming senile, burdensome or difficult to manage was to actually bring shame and discomfort upon your family. Life at that point was no better than death. The elderly could become a subject of pity or ridicule and this was often portrayed by the literary elite. So Juvenal, who was a popular writer of satire in the 2nd century AD, writes of the elderly this. Old men all look alike. Their voices are as shaky as their limbs, their heads without hair, their noses drip like an infant's, and their bread, poor wretches, must be chewed by toothless gums. They become so offensive to their wives, their children and themselves that even legacy hunters turn from them in disgust. Their numbed palate no longer takes pleasure from wine or food, and sex has long been forgotten. So the loss of mental faculties was particularly abhorrent, uh, perhaps why so many men in their older age turned to philosophy as a way of proving that their mind remained sharp. Cough, cough, I'm looking at you, Cicero. So the saying, you know, the good die young is actually of ancient origin for this very reason. As a result, the deaths of elderly people is not as disappointing or as upsetting as the death of young people. So Cicero, actually, in his work On Old Age, writes... Now, the fruit of old age, as I have often said, is the memory of plentiful things attained earlier in life. But above all, what happens in nature should be seen as good. And what is more in accordance with nature than that the elderly die? But when the same fate befalls the young, nature resists. So when the young die, it seems to me as if a strong flame has been extinguished by a flood of water. But when the old die... It is as if the fire has extinguished itself after all of the fuel has been consumed. So the issue of when the correct time to die was, was never properly resolved in Rome or frankly at any time or at any place. To this day, we can't work out whether it's better to die with beauty and strength or to live long enough to enjoy these things and then watch them fade. But either way, ancient death was not very good either for the very young or the very old. So now I kind of wanted to change tact a little bit and have a look at some ways in which people died. Um, a grim topic, I know. And the first place to stop is actually with disease. And I wanted to sort of take a moment to have a look at disease mostly because of its relevancy to today's world. And I know that this is quite a grim wish of mine to go into it, but hopefully being able to relate to the ancient world shows us how much like us they, they really are. Um, so, you know, solidarity in history, I guess. 
So again, I can't comment much on death from disease because of the poor archaeological record. Great diseases that killed many people often led to huge mass cremations outside of the city, which weren't memorialised or sort of marked in any way. And so there's often a bad implication on the current emperor for allowing diseases like this to occur, so they would be sure to wipe it from the historical record where possible. But we do have some record of, from like historians, satirists like Juvenal, and doctors like Pliny the Elder and Younger who could comment on these kind of occurrences. As I'm sure you can imagine, with the crowded urban areas in ancient cities and towns, diseases could spread like wildfire and were devastating to the population. Most people who lived in urban areas died of disease rather than old age, war or otherwise. Because of poor medical accessibility and knowledge, these deaths were often gruesome, painful and disgusting. So <laughs> Emperor Valentinian, who died in 375 AD, was speechless, sweating and breathless. He ground his teeth, flailed his limbs and he was covered in a hideous rash as he finally succumbed to death. Most deaths were not recorded in such gruesome detail and a lot of emphasis was placed on having a good death, which was quick and relatively painless. So, you know, one of the best deaths you could have was like a heart attack, for example, which kind of, sort of just sort of took you dead quickly. Um, Pliny the Elder actually commented that life's supreme happiness was to actually have a quick death, which is quite telling, I think. Many people would actually turn to suicide over having a long and painful death from disease. And there are so many accounts of letters being sent from one family member to another saying, I've been told that I've got this fatal disease and it's going to kill me long and slowly. So I'm going to die this afternoon. Bye. Um, which is quite harrowing, really. But that was the decision a lot of people had to make, sort of weighing up the importance of their life versus the severity of their suffering. And there's also such thing as like a moral plague, and a lot of emphasis was placed on the emperor in charge for the occurrence and spread of disease. So Suetonius writes that over 30,000 people died in a Roman plague during the reign of Nero, not in small part because of the moral laxity that he allowed among the Roman people. So moving on from disease a little bit, let's have a quick look at murder. Don't we all love murder? Um, it is often joked about Rome that it is the sort of brutish younger brother of ancient Greece. And actually, in a lot of ways, this isn't too far from the truth. Murder, assassination, uprisings, muggings and public executions were actually a part of a day to day life in Rome. And because of that, there is so much evidence around murder and what it entailed and how people died that I can't possibly begin to go into it. But most of it is just sort of anecdotes. So for instance, Suetonius notes that Emperor Nero used to wander around Rome mugging and killing people in the streets just for fun. There are hundreds of entertaining anecdotes for the bloodiest and most brutal murders, but none captured the imagination more than those which involve scandal, affairs and political manipulation among the elite. So such a story was distributed by Tacitus in the 2nd century AD regarding an event that took place in AD 58. And I really wanted to share it with you because it's just short, sweet and quite funny. So the man in question in the story is Octavius Sagitta, who is a tribune of the plebs. So he's quite an important person. And the story goes like this. As he has been spurned, he asked as a consolation for one night to allay his passion and help him control himself in the future. 
The night was fixed and Pontia, the woman, had a maid who was in their confidence and she watched the bedroom. Octavius arrived with a freed slave and a dagger hidden within his clothes. Love and anger ran their course. They quarrelled, pleaded and insulted each other and made it up. For part of the night they made love and as if incensed by passion, he ran her through with the dagger while she suspected nothing. The maid running to help was frightened away wounded as he escaped the room. So, um... That's quite a funny little story, but there are hundreds like that throughout Rome. If you're interested in this kind of thing, I would definitely um, use sort of funny murders as an interesting research topic. But kind of on that note, I wanted to have a quick look at the idea of the sanctity of life. <laughs> so nowadays we do have this kind of notion that human life is really valuable and often it's, it's sacred. So to take a life nowadays is known as the ultimate crime. But this is not necessarily so in the ancient world if that little anecdote didn't let you on to that fact. So whilst murder was still punished, death in other spheres was actually encouraged. So battle deaths were seen as completely normal, um, particularly at like the killing of hostages and conquered nations. Death formed a large part of public entertainment in the form of, you know, gladiatorial games and public executions, you know, particularly, for an example, thinking about the persecution of the Christians uh, in the sort of later, in the later centuries, they were seen as a huge part of entertainment. So there's a lot of moral controversy around this form of entertainment, and particularly with the upper class elite, and a lot of distaste was aimed at public executions and gladiatorial games. So Seneca writes in the first century AD on choosing to watch a gladiator match that by chance I went to one of the midday shows expecting some fun, wit and relaxation and entertainment to which men's eyes have a break from the slaughter of their fellow men. It was the reverse. The earlier contests were compassionate in comparison. Now the trifling is set aside and it is pure murder. The men have no armour and their bodies are entirely exposed to blows, so no one strikes in vain. In the morning men are thrown to lions and bears, but it is to the spectators that they are thrown at noon. So there's a couple of things there. You've kind of got this implication that Seneca is, is looking down his nose at this type of sort of slaughter. But also, it's interesting to hear him say, you know, gladiatorial games were a break from the slaughter of his fellow men. So you can just imagine what Rome was like at that time. But interestingly, suicide is also viewed very differently then to how it is now. So the word suicide is not actually derived from classical Latin, but from kind of Christian Latin much, much later. So the ancient word for suicide is actually mors voluntaria, which means voluntary death, which holds a slightly different connotation to sort of suicide. So in later Latin, the word suicide comes from sui, which means themselves, and caidare, which is where we get the suffix side from, you know, like pesticide, homicide. Um, which literally means to kill themselves. So it, it's quite different sort of emphasis there. It's moved from voluntary death to killing themselves. So voluntary death in the ancient world was actually seen with some respect and it was always considered to be a rational and considered choice rather than something that was inherently wrong or comes from mental instability. 
So if you led a miserable existence and you believed that you would never find happiness, it was actually seen as a rational conclusion to just end your own life. Seneca the Younger viewed suicide as a matter of free will and it could provide like a path to liberty, allowing the individual to escape a life that ceased to hold virtue for them. Equally, if you were being hunted or prescripted um, and wanted an honourable death, it made sense to kill yourself before you were captured. If your nation had been conquered, it made sense to kill yourself rather than be tortured by the enemy. An honourable, well thought out and bravely met suicide was actually considered to be a good death. And on the reverse, a poorly thought out and an impulsive suicide was, was definitely not. In Rome's own myths of their sort of foundations and their kings... You have the sort of the rape of Lucretia. So Lucretia, after being raped by Superbus, committed suicide to not bring shame upon her household. And this was definitely seen as a tragic but fitting end to her life. So that being said, there were varying opinions on suicide and not all philosophical schools or people saw it in this way. But if you want to have a look into this as a research topic, that is a really sort of interesting little nugget to go towards. Okay, so I am actually going to leave it there for now. I completely underestimated how long it was going to take me to get through all of this uh, interesting content. So I'm not going to bore you by taking 45 minutes to an hour to explain all of this. And actually, I'm going to split it up quite nicely. So I'm going to carry on recording the rest of what I want to say. So we're going to have a look at Roman funerals, Roman grief and Roman afterlife and submit them as separate episodes so hopefully you can get a better more rounded more detailed view on roman death but that does mean we're going to be looking at roman death for quite a while which you know can be seen as quite grim but i think hopefully it will be quite useful to your studies and the different sort of episodes will be quite different so there's a lot of good places to start your research if you have any questions on today's podcast, where we're going or any of the sources that I've used, please do send me an email. I look forward to thinking about what kind of things you're going to be researching and I look forward to reading the research that you've done. For everybody that submitted research last week, I have seen them. They were pretty good standard. Hopefully um, for a few of you, I think maybe you need to sort of step it up a little bit this week and make sure that you've got a lot more sort of content there. But if you're having any problems, do let me know and I will get back to you as soon as I can. But hopefully you've enjoyed learning about Roman dying. <laughs> Again, a bit of a grim topic. I'm hoping that as we sort of move forward, I can make it a little bit more user friendly and a little bit lighter. But there'll be plenty more anecdotes, plenty more fun stories to listen to in that regard. Okay, so um, have a good day. Hope you've enjoyed and I will speak to you later in the week. Ciao.